Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. We have got a special edition. This is almost an emergency podcast, Rick. Almost. This is not our regularly scheduled podcast. We wanted to get to something very specific. Look, there's a lot to talk about, and we're going to, believe me, we will get to our podcast. Uh, we, we will do it uh, within a day or two. This is a special edition uh, that is specifically looking into the issue of, or, or the subject of, the, the, the old hickory in the room, Andrew Jackson. <laughs> I mean, Rick, I was quite struck by the president's comments in not just the interview with Selena Zito, where he talked about Andrew Jackson and the Civil War, but also the discussion that the president had in the Oval Office with John Dickerson about the portrait of Andrew Jackson that is there quite prominently in the Oval Office. So I don't know if you know this, but what we have done for this special edition of the Powerhouse Politics podcast is if we have called on who I think is probably the person most well-equipped to discuss Andrew Jackson, probably in the entire world, uh, Mr. Steve Inskeep of NPR, great guy, good friend, friend of the program, uh, of Morning Edition, author of Jackson Land. He's going to be joining us in about 60 seconds. And it's fascinating to see because you know that there's an ideology behind this, the, the Jacksonian twist on Trumpism. He has looked to history. A man that doesn't read much history, doesn't think about history very much, has brought up Andrew Jackson time and again. And it means something. And we'll debate the, the, the historical accuracy or inaccuracy of saying that he would have prevented the Civil War. Historians will do that one forever. But what's undeniable is that he sees this as an intellectual force, an intellectual guide for him. If you look into history, it seems to be the president, maybe other than Reagan, with whom he sees the closest kind of personal connection. By the way, Rick, I'm old enough to remember, I don't know if you are, but I'm old enough to remember when Democrats used to go around and speak at Jefferson Jackson Jackson dinners, when Jackson was lauded as essentially the founder of the modern Democratic Party. Uh, Now we have a point where a lot of those Jefferson Jackson dinners have been rebranded and a Republican president has brought this this portrait right there right off to the uh, to the side of his desk I, in the Oval Office. And I also know there's some Republican dinners called Lincoln Day dinners. Get and, the heck out and of you here. You know what Lincoln did? He didn't stop the Civil War. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, uh, without any further delay, uh, Steve Inskeep of NPR, author of the highly acclaimed uh, book Jackson Land, welcome to the program. Uh, gentlemen, I'm I'm honored that when you think of 185-year-old breaking news, you think of me. Thanks very much for that. <laughs> this is an emergency Appreciate podcast. It. So, so b- before we get into uh, the discussion of the Civil War and and all of that, I want to play for you, Steve, uh, what the president uh, talked to about John Dickerson, our friend from CBS, uh, there in the Oval Please. Office. Let's play this out. Every president makes the Oval Office theirs. What have you done to make this yours? Well, a lot of things. Uh, We had these incredible flags, including the American flags, and they were in different rooms. And they were always being pushed around because they didn't have enough room. And I said, how beautiful the base, the flags, Army, Navy, Marine Corps. uh, I mean, just so beautiful, just so beautiful. The Coast Guard flag over here. And I said, well, let's see how they look in the Oval Office. So the flags are up. The picture of Thomas Jefferson I put up, the picture of Andrew Jackson I put up because they said his campaign and my campaign tended to mirror each other. Um, So we did a lot of, actually we did a lot of work. It's it's a much 
it's a much different uh, look than it was previously. So, Steve, let me ask you about that. And this was something that was talked about a a bit during the campaign and certainly after the election. But what is what is your take on the sense? And Donald Trump's not the first person to say it, but that uh, that his campaign to a certain degree uh, was was an echo, perhaps a distant one of, of Andrew Jackson and perhaps more so the reaction to his victory. Uh, was was okay, was um, was similar first, to where the, 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 yeah, the part about they said they said that this campaign was like Andrew Jackson's. Who who do we suppose that is? I suppose we think it is Steve Bannon, among others, who was a top executive at Breitbart, which had some articles that promoted this connection back during the campaign. Uh, but there is something to it. There's something to it in substance, and there's something to it in the politics. The substance is that Jackson was or cast himself as an outsider, even though he was actually a very rich guy and a member of a certain elite, which can sound kind of familiar. And he cast himself as the man who was in favor of the common people and of the majority ruling against an aristocracy. So the language is a little different, but the sentiment is really similar. And I got to say, guys, uh, another thing that I think has been commented on a little bit less is just that Andrew Jackson is a figure who's been kicked around a little bit, who was knocked to the backside of the $20 bill by President Obama. And I'm sure that that uh, makes it very pleasurable for someone like Donald Trump to promote that very president who has been scorned by by a lot of historians and who is at the least a complex figure. But let's also talk, uh, Steve, about the reaction to Jackson's victory. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the the elite of the time had a reaction, did they not? That that is not all that dissimilar oh. uh, from oh, the reaction yeah. people, to Donald Trump's people victory. People were horrified. People were horrified. People were horrified before he became uh, president. Uh, it took him an extra four years to become president than he thought it should have because he ran first in 1824 and he won the when, popular vote. When he won no, the popular vote. Yeah, yeah, won the popular vote, but nobody won a majority of, of popular or electoral votes. It was thrown to the House of Representatives, and, and he was beaten in the House by John Quincy Adams. One of the reasons was was that uh, another famous politician, not to overload you guys with names, but Henry Clay um, uh, of Kentucky, great, great senator later on, was then Speaker of the House. He ran the vote, and he thought Jackson was a dangerous guy, that he would try to become a dictator because he had been a general, because he seemed rather crude and outlandish and, and made violent illusions uh, from time to time of doing things like cutting off the ears of his critics, um, which you, you haven't heard Trump tweet that he's going to cut off anybody's ears, to be mm. perfectly fair to, to the current president. But Jackson was seen as this very violent and threatening person, and it was feared that he would, he would uh, become a dictator or become a monarch. Uh, And, of course, if you were on the side of Jackson, you believed that there was this group of elites who would become a bit too clubby or a lot too clubby, who were passing the presidency from hand to hand in a way that wasn't really very open or very democratic. And Jackson was the guy who wanted to to crack that open when he was inaugurated. And this is one of the most famous stories in all of American politics. There was a huge crowd for the inauguration on what was in the east front of the United States Capitol. And then Jackson Huge, had by the way, one of the biggest crowds ever that we ever saw for, yeah, for inauguration, yeah, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the very largest crowd ever in history. No, 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 no. But it was just pretty big, though. Um, and I'm not sure the Park Service was around to, to, to fail to count it at that time. But, but Jackson, I do know this. Jackson tried to uh, return back to the White House and was mobbed. 
He had difficulty getting his horse through the crowd. He finally got to the White House, and the White House was thrown open to the people in a way that's hard to imagine today. And there were such massive crowds that Jackson himself was pinned against a wall, seemed to be in danger, and had to be wedged out of there uh, and ended up spending the night in a hotel because the White House had been trashed. You can imagine that uh, old hands in Washington were horrified by all of this. But, of course, uh, Jackson and his supporters and his acolytes through the years turned it to his advantage and used that as a symbol of the power of the people. And the symbolism of power seemed so important for him as well. This was a celebrity of the 19th century, right, Steve? I mean, this is oh, someone gosh, who was so right. celebrated and known outside the world of, world of politics and then comes have a crashing into the system. Well, he had what was basically was a reality show for the day in terms of books and serials and newspapers, the articles that were written about him, right, Steve? I mean, this was he, he was he was a major celebrity in a much different media age. You are you're you're totally right, uh, Rick. And uh, yeah, his reality show was uh, was the War of eighteen twelve. Basically, um, he he was this larger than life figure. Really, before the War of eighteen twelve, I think mostly known in Tennessee. But he was this frontier lawyer who had risen from poverty, who was the state's first ever congressman, who was a senator, who was a judge. He was a land speculator. He was a rich guy. He was a plantation owner, and let's not forget that means that he owned hundreds of slaves and immense amounts of real estate during his time. Uh, but then during the War of 1812, he won the Battle of Horseshoe Bend against Creek Indians, and then won the Battle of New Orleans um, against the British just at the end of the War of 1812. Uh, it's a little like the Johnny Horton song, which maybe you guys heard when you were kids. I don't know. Uh, not exactly like that, but a little like that. Hmm. And and it was considered a huge victory that was so surprising that it was cast almost as a deliverance from God, from providence. And suddenly this uh, guy was seen as a man who had God on his side and who had won this victory against the great British army with this seemingly ragtag collection of Kentucky frontiersmen and African-American soldiers from New Orleans, militiamen, and uh, pirates. There was a French pirate uh, named Jean Lafitte who agreed to bring his cannoneers in to help Andrew Jackson. There were even Indians who fought on the side of Andrew Jackson in this American force. And so it was this really classic American story, guys, the very first version of this classic American story of the kind of ragtag citizen soldiers who come together to defend America and beat the best people in the world. It was this incredible story. He was incredibly famous. And Rick is also right that he exploited, extended, took advantage of his fame because he allowed a couple of his aides to write a biography a couple of years after the war, which... This isn't totally accurate, but it's close enough. It was basically the first presidential campaign biography because it did eventually promote him as a candidate for president of the United States. And President Trump takes this that backstory and then and then the presidency of Andrew Jackson, the nationalist sentiment against the sectionalist times. And the the we, we presume he's referring to the nullification crisis in talking about his efforts to avert what might have been a civil war some 30 yeah. years before the actual one. What's your read of that, Stephen? And how accurate a read is that of history to say that he prevented one civil war and that he could have, if he was a little younger, came a little bit later, prevented another? All right, but before you answer, uh, Steve, I, before you answer, let, let, yes. let's play the sound. Okay. Let's actually hear what he had to Please. say. They said my campaign is most like my campaign and, and win was most like Andrew Jackson with his campaign. And I said, when was Andrew Jackson 
1828. That's a long time ago. That's Andrew Jackson. And he had a very, very mean and nasty campaign because they said this was the meanest and the nastiest. And unfortunately, his continues. His wife died. His wife died. Yeah. They, they destroyed his wife, and she died. And, you know, he was a swashbuckler. But when his wife died, you know, he visited her grave every day. I, I visited her grave, actually, because I was in Tennessee. Oh, that's right. You were in Tennessee. And it was amazing. The people of Tennessee are amazing people. Well, they love Andrew Jackson. They love Andrew Jackson in Tennessee. Yeah. He's, he's a fascinating I mean, had Andrew Jackson been a little bit later, you wouldn't have had the Civil War. He was, he was a very tough person, but he had a big heart. And he was, he was really angry that he saw what was happening with regard to the Civil War. He said, there's no reason for this. People don't realize, you know, the Civil War, um, yeah, you think about it, why? People don't ask that question. But why was there the Civil War? Why could, why could that one not have been worked out? Okay, there's a lot, a lot to unpack there, Steve. But, but the reason why I wanted to play the full exchange is, first of all, uh, to make sure everybody knows that Donald Trump actually knows when Andrew Jackson was was president. Um, there was a lot, you know, people kind of pounced on the fact that he said he was angry about what was going on with the Civil War. Obviously, he was dead by the time the Civil War started. He had been dead for 16 years. But those issues were certainly there when he was there. And I, I think that Donald Trump's got a, got, got a sense of that. But anyway, a uh, lot to unpack here. But let's start with... Uh, with, with this question of what he was talking about with regard to Andrew Jackson being angry and, and, and would have liked to prevent. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, you're right. There's a lot of imprecision there. Uh, but, but I think you're being fair. Um, and if you're going to make the statement, Andrew Jackson was angry, that's pretty much true all the time. So I mean, that, you're totally cool with that. I mean, the guy had a bullet maybe, in his lung, right? Or, yeah, but, I mean. He had a couple of bullets, not to one-up you there, but he, went, he took the oath of office. He had two bullets in him and seemed to be willing to take another. There's a story about an assassination attempt that uh, ended up with Jackson fighting off the guy with a cane. Um, he, was a, he was a cranky guy and not a guy to mess with. But there is something to the story to which the president not too precisely referred. Uh, in the 1820s and 30s, there was a kind of test run to the Civil War, to secession. There were a number of southern states that challenged federal authority in different ways, and the most prominent was South Carolina, and they said they wanted to nullify federal law. They didn't want to pay a tax, a, a tariff on imported goods, which they considered unfair. And Jackson was president at the time and insisted that federal authority must be maintained. And through a series of carefully calibrated threats, deployments of force, uh, and also compromise, he got out of that situation. He sent a U.S. Navy warship to the harbor at Charleston just to sit there so that everybody could look at the uh, cannon on that gun in Charleston, South Carolina, and be aware what the stakes were. He asked Congress in what was called the force bill to give him authority to raise an army to go put down rebels if he had to put down rebels. And also there was a compromise in Congress, and they, they cut the tariff. And that crisis didn't exactly go away uh, but it eased, and it is part of the long, long run-up to the Civil War. You've got to give Jackson credit as what was called then a Unionist. He was somebody that, even though he was a Southerner, even though he was a slave owner, even though he didn't uh, disagree with uh, Southern leaders really at all about slavery, 
he was in favor of the union, and he was very strong at that time. It's one of his great achievements. But let's note something that that we just we just said there, and that is that he was a slave owner, and that this issue, this dispute, was not strictly directly about slavery. By so, the time 1861 came along, history had moved further along, and the dispute was about slavery, which is a lot harder to compromise. And, and that, I think, is such an important point, because your, 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 your version and the historical version is he averts this crisis with a, with a, with a flex of some military muscle, some, some threats, and a political compromise, and a tax cut. That's different than the issue that, that arises with slavery. And, and we also heard the president say that uh, – President Trump say that President Jackson had this big heart. Is that in keeping with your read of, of Andrew Jackson as a slave owner, as a slave trader, as someone um, who was res- responsible for expulsion of Indians and the Trail of Tears? Was there a big Jacksonian heart? Um, I, the way I like to think of it was that he was a big-hearted guy unless his political or economic interests got in the way. And mm-hmm. then he would stop at nothing. He would be totally, totally ruthless. That was true with Indians. There were Indians who considered him a friend. And there were occasions on which he was quite friendly to Indians, but he believed that they should be moved from the eastern states west of the Mississippi for their own good, he said, and also so that white settlers could get their real estate. And he uh, worked at that for not just a couple of years, but for decades, for most of his career. And it was the same thing with slaves. There are accounts which uh, make him out to be a rather kind slave owner, but uh, he was still a slave owner. He didn't free any slaves. And there are specific occasions where um, slaves escaped from him and he advertised for their return. He offered rewards for their return. And in at least one occasion that I know of, he personally chased them down. Uh, so th- this is a guy who would stop at nothing if, if, his, if his pocketbook was involved, if his interests were involved, or if his political coalition was in any way threatened. So, he, on one hand, he was a strong union man. On the yeah. other hand, he was a southerner and a slave own, slaveholder. Yeah, yeah, and it's just—I mean, it, 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 it there. And just to to continue to be totally fair, the history is so complex. There were slave owners at the time of the Civil War, as you guys probably know very well, who were union people who mm-hmm. who stood up for the union. And it could very well be that if Andrew Jackson lived 30 years later that he would have been one of those guys, one of those unionists standing up uh, for the country at large against individual states that wanted to do specific things that, that the federal government found objectionable. But it's hard to imagine him leading some crusade to free the slaves, for example. And we should remember the Civil War was a calamity. We should never wish for a war or approve of a war. But the result um, was the freedom of millions of people who were not free before. Uh, maybe that was not an issue that really should have been compromised away in the end. You know, that, that, that needed to end in the way that it did. Maybe there was some way that it could have been done peacefully, but people did try in 1861, just before the shooting started, to find some kind of compromise, and they ultimately failed. And what do you read into the, the, the way that President Trump identifies with, with Andrew Jackson, putting the portrait up and bringing up this analogy. He clearly sees himself as a Jacksonian figure. We know that he's got a, a particular affinity for men of power, men of strong will, including foreign leaders, including some rogue foreign leaders. But what, what do you read into it as we try to learn something about this new president barely 100 days in? 
I think you've identified a few really smart things. He clearly tries to identify himself as strong leaders and sees Jackson as a tough guy. He used that word swashbuckler. That's a fun word to use. I can't totally disagree with it because this is a guy who, as a general, uh, in 1818, 1819, uh, without formal authorization, invaded the state of Florida, which was controlled by Spain at the time, and took it over. I mean, it's part of the story of why Florida is part of the United States. That's kind of swashbuckling. He did what he wanted, um, what 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 he what he wanted to do. But I think that there's also something politically rather clever about this. Um, I think about a couple of years ago when Jackson was totally under attack and the Treasury Department said it was going to take him off the front of the $20 bill and stick him on the back somewhere uh, in some way that hasn't quite been determined, there was a campaign to replace Andrew Jackson with a woman and almost nobody spoke up for Andrew Jackson. It was not considered proper to speak up for this guy who had been a slave owner, who had been implicated, not implicated, a chief actor in Indian removal, as it was called, in the Trail of Tears. Nobody publicly defended this guy. But at that same time, by chance, I'd finished this book and got a chance to travel around several parts of the country, particularly in the South, uh, going to events for this book. And I just spent a couple of years researching this book. And when you do that, you discover that there are an awful lot of people who were brought up to revere Andrew Jackson, who heard that Johnny Horton song about Andrew Jackson, who watched an old Disney movie that featured Andrew Jackson, who read history books in which Andrew Jackson featured prominently, who have noticed the statues of Andrew Jackson in front of the White House in Washington or at Jackson Square in New Orleans, who are familiar with this guy's story and had been all along kind of quietly resentful that he was under such continuous attack. And people would mutter how much they didn't like it and how they didn't think it was fair the way that he was being treated. And so if you were going to be Donald Trump, taking the political approach that he has taken to every issue, and you're thinking about what historical character to identify with, Jackson is almost the perfect guy. So... If uh, the next one of us to sit down for an interview with Donald Trump should probably ask the question, just uh, just one of those at the end, what does he make of that change to the $20 bill, and is he going to put the brakes on it? Oh, I've been curious about that, and yeah. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, they've let that lie for the moment, but uh, th- that, that would be huge because they put Harriet Tubman on there now, haven't yeah. they? They said they're going to. They and said so, they're going to. Are you going yeah. to overturn Harriet Tubman? You know, I, I proposed... Um, some time ago, actually, that they do every bill with uh, a character on each side and um, that they could be characters from similar periods in history that, that would they, they would show some opposition because we're in a democracy that's it's, it's supposed to be about us opposing each other. You know, you should have Jefferson on one side of the bill and Hamilton on the other side of the same bill because they hated each other and they represented two kinds of government. And I actually think it's fine if you end up, as is currently the plan, having Andrew Jackson on one side of the $20 bill and Harriet Tubman on the other, because you will have on one side a slave owner who did chase down escaped slaves, and on the other side, a former slave who helped other slaves escape, which to me is awesome symbolism and shows the contrasts and the variety of this country 
And that's actually what democracy is supposed to be. We're supposed to have an argument. See, this is a great idea. And another reason, Rick, for my campaign to make Steve Inskeep the Treasury Secretary. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I think this, cause these decisions ultimately uh, are made by Treasury. Hey, we, we, we have to let you go, Steve. But but what, what you got me thinking, I, I want to ask you, 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 your travels and, and, and the, these, these the kind of uh, this silent, uh, group of of, um, of of kind of Jackson supporters who resent this campaign against Jackson. Watching Donald Trump talk about his that portrait and looking at that portrait over his shoulder in the Oval Office uh, made me wonder: Have we ever seen a Republican president celebrate uh, Andrew Jackson in the way that uh, that Donald Trump has? Yes. Who? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, uh, there are paintings of Abraham Lincoln's presidential office, which show a portrait of Andrew Jackson on the wall. And I believe that to be accurate. He was a guy who was credited in his day for being a unionist and saving the union. And so he was an example to Lincoln as Lincoln was going about freeing the slaves, even though that is something that Jackson himself would probably never have done. Steve Inskeep, thank you so much for joining us. Next time we're going to have you on the show, we want to try to bring the conversation maybe into the 20th century, but, but I, I, I appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> maybe the 21st. Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, let's, not, thinking, let's not get out of control. Guys, I'm thinking the 23rd-century $10,000 bill with Trump and Clinton on opposite sides. What do you think? Could it uh, I happen? Know. I, I don't know if you quite have the touch that uh, Steve has <laughs> All right, on just saying. All right, all right. All right, Steve Inskeep of NPR's Morning Edition, author of Jackson Land. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, guys. See, that was pretty good. I, you know, I, I, I like that idea. I like that idea of, of, of having one side of the bill represent one side, another side representing another. This is good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Why not? And, and I think there's a, there is a lesson to draw out of all of this. This this president, we know that there are people that are talking to you about history. We know Steve Bannon, among others. We mentioned Breitbart. We've heard Newt Gingrich talk about the Jacksonian parts of this. When he steps takes that step back and thinks about his role in history, I, I and I agree with you, John. It's it's easy to just make fun of him for un- misunderstanding the history and getting the timeline wrong. But it's important to think about the historical parallels that he sees because he sees so few few of them and talks about it so little. His role in the world, his role in the presidency. It's important to unpack that and to say, what does it mean to be Jacksonian? What does it mean to Donald Trump to, to idolize Andrew Jackson? Yeah, it's fascinating. God, I didn't know about the Lincoln angle. So Lincoln's the other Republican president that had Jackson up on the wall in his How office. How about that? How about that? Uh, you learn a lot on powerhouse politics. <laughs> All right. Hey, before we go, we had some other breaking news. This is really interesting, uh, uh, Rick. Um, you know, our chief executive producer, David Rind, uh, you know, the, the guy that the puts this program on, emergency podcast, regular podcast, special edition podcast. Did you hear that he got engaged last weekend to Angie? Unbelievable. It is. It has been confirmed. It is. It is for real. Our congratulations. To That's you. a hearty congratulations. I feel I, I, that that. Uh, uh, congratulations. I don't know what Angie oh, was thinking. Thanks, guys. But, That's um, a, you guys are really too much, I, I, really. I, just, I, 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 I really don't know. We'll say uh, but, uh, but that is all the time we have now. I want to thank, uh, thank Dave Rind. I, I want to thank Josh Cohen, uh, our uh, – what's his title again? Um, Junior podcast? Senior Executive Producer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Avery Miller, who is really the czar of the program, uh, pulling it all together. Uh, we'll be back uh, before the week's out. We've got a lot else to talk about right here in the 21st century. But thank you for listening to Powerhouse Politics. We'll talk to you again later this week.